Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you, first of all, for your gifts to this body, especially we're so grateful for Jesse's ministry and many others who serve this church. But I'm especially grateful for your generosity to us in Jesus Christ. And may this morning we feel and sense and know the gratitude that you have given to us through Jesus. And I pray that you would teach us in your word this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, if you think, if you've looked at your bulletin, you know it's money. Um, my sermon's going to be nicer than Jesus's words, uh, so you can breathe deeply. Um, actually, I think it's Jesus's words that set the tenor and the tone of what we're going to talk about this morning. And to look at generosity as a congregation is to first start with the framework that God is to us a generous God. So if we're going to talk about money and generosity, our personal generosity, we have to start first with a greater framework. God is generous to you in many ways. That was last week's sermon. Drew did a great job of kicking us off on that. But I want to set our context before I dive in specifically on the principle of tithing this morning. And that's this. The favorite subject of Jesus was not sex, racism, or even justice. He did talk about these things. He did not slack on those things either. It isn't even heaven or hell, as many people would think, or eternal life. It is money. He talked more about money, as some theologians and commentators say, than all of those subjects combined. Why? Well, let's listen to this verse that comes out of Matthew 7. Where your treasure is, your money, where your treasure, your money is, your heart is also. Secondly, Paul said the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. It's where all the problems start. Jesus even said this later, and this is why money and the talk about um, where our heart is was so important to him. It is impossible to serve two masters, God and money. So these are the, the context by which we talk about money today. What we're going to look about uh, on this subject for three weeks is the framework that the scriptures gives us to become and to be generous people. And you'll see those worked out over the next couple of weeks my own personal understanding, our family understanding, Angela Kay and I, as we dealt with what we do with our money and how to live faithfully, um, was shaped through my time in seminary, ironically. I was given a framework to move towards generosity rather than leaving it up to me to, quote unquote, just feel led. Because if I'm left to just feeling led, I often felt led to give to my own desires. So I needed a framework to understand how do I become generous, a generous person. And the scriptures give us that sort of framework for us this morning. But I want to acknowledge something 
with you all this morning. The church as an institution has blown it many times for many reasons. Certainly in every time and place, the church has been a marginal or an unhelpful witness to the gospel. Scandals, problems have always been a part of the church because people are a part of the church. I get the joy, and it's really a great joy to teach the fellows program every year, usually in the spring, a crash course in church history, and I love it. I love walking through those things to help folks, all of us, as I came to understand, the church in her beauty and her frailty. You cannot separate the two. Um, Church leaders have embezzled money. They've taught erroneous practices, like if you give, God will make you wealthy. We read about the lavish lifestyles of some leaders who have essentially stolen money for personal gain. But just because the church and its leaders has blown it does not mean that the principle of generosity is nullified. Rather, it must be taught rightly and lived faithfully. In 2008 and then in 2010, one of America's leading Christian sociologists, Dr. Christian Smith, who's at Duke, Notre Dame, smart guy, and a group of colleagues studied the principle of tithing in in the American churches. And he wrote two books, Passing the Plate, colon, Why Why American Christians Don't Give Away More Money, average is 2%, by the way, And then the second follow-up book, The Paradox of Giving, colon, Giving We Receive, Grasping We Lose. And his discovery contained empirical data, not just like generalities that we like to say as pastors, but empirical data. And this is what um, Christian Smith and his colleagues discovered, that those who have developed a commitment and the habit of tithing are happier and healthier. They live at CVS, by the way. Um, the corner of healthy and happy. They're happier and healthy. Sorry, I'm trying to lighten the mood. Y'all are really stiff this morning. Why? I don't know. And they're happier and healthier, and they have a richer experience of life, of a life of purpose, and lower levels of depression and anxiety disorders, empirical data to this, not just let me give a verse, let me give a sociologist study of what generosity does in our lives. This is what he says. People who do not tithe view themselves as holding basins, collecting more and more resources without realizing that their concave, their curved in lifestyles drain and hollow out whatever health, vivacity, and happiness they might have otherwise. How does the scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, teach about generosity with our money? Well, it's at least three ways. You know, it's a sermon, so you can get three points. Um, The first way is the principle of tithing. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The second is the principle of cheerful giving. That's what we call offerings. What we give to see the kingdom of God advance beyond our storehouse, the local church. And then third is the principle of compassion. 
what the Bible in the old language calls alms, almsgiving, how we help those in need. We'll look at those things over the next few weeks. When I learned this framework, these three ways that we are to give, no surprise, my generosity, our personal generosity in our household increased. And we're constantly always trying to figure out and find ways to give more to the things that God's called us to, to the church, and to those in need. So that framework has not been restrictive, but it's been freeing. And that's what I want you to hear this morning about generosity. We think generosity, loss, but it's actually freeing, which is why usually Sunday after Sunday, we won't say it in the epiphany season, I say before the offering, it really is more blessed to give for a list of reasons than to receive. So let's first look at the structure of tithing. I would encourage us to see several main points. First, tithing in the Old Testament. Secondly, the tribe of Levi. And thirdly, Jesus, our great high priest. So I'm going to talk about tithing. I want you to understand tithing in the Old Testament. Secondly, the tribe of Levi and its example to us. And thirdly, Jesus, our great high priest. So firstly, tithing in the Old Testament. If you want to turn in your Bibles or whatever thing you use to get there, uh, Hebrews chapter 7. We see clearly in the writer of Hebrews and in Genesis chapter 14, this story of this character named Melchizedek, that the principle of tithing existed before the laws surrounding tithing were in place. So please understand that. If you miss, well, I can't just reduce it to this one statement. Please understand this. The principle of tithing existed before the laws and regulations surrounding giving existed in the example of Melchizedek. Here we see in um, chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. So Abram, called by God to go to the land that God would show him, bless him. He encounters this guy named Melchizedek along the way, who was, two things, king of Salem and priest of God Most High. It'd make you wonder if Abraham, who is the person whose lineage set up the priesthood, wait, who's this Melchizedek character? And it says he met him returning from the defeat of kings. There was a battle that Abram was a part of. And Melchizedek blessed Abram. And he gave him a tenth of everything. So here's Melchizedek, priest, holy guy, king of Salem, blesses him. And Abraham tithes back to Melchizedek. The author says, first, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means the king of peace. Jerusalem is the city founded in this kingdom that existed before Abraham. So, he says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, Melchizedek, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Okay? Before you can understand tithing, you have to understand the generosity of God. Secondly, 
you have to understand that tithing was a practice that existed way before all the laws. So if someone comes to you and says, tithing, don't have to do that. All those laws, Old Testament, they're fulfilled in Christ, not necessary. You miss a great gift of God with respect to generosity. Giving a, t- a tenth is not just a principle of laws and regulations, but listen to this. It was a holy practice before the law even existed. Abraham tithed to a priest. Why? It was an act of worship. Genesis 15, it says, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and then he gave him something, a gift. What did he give him? Genesis chapter 14, bread and wine. So often the stories in the Old Testament They're whispering to us something greater to come. The Old Testament Testament whisper was calling us to see that an act of generosity is an act of worship to God. The great patriarch who just defeated the kings worshipped the king of Salem. This story gives us this great principle of what is to come. Which helps us understand then the tribe of Levi's and how we understand priests and temples in the Old Testament. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. The writer says, just think how great he was, Melchizedek. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law, Mosaic law, the regulations requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. Now, this could be confusing. Let me try to slow it down for just a second. Here's what happened. In Abraham, we see this principle of tithing. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Then years later, Abraham's offspring, particularly the tribe of Levi, became and played an important role in the life of the people of God. Their descendants of of, um, Moses and their descendants of, of Abraham, Aaron and Moses are, are part of the tribe of Levi, which means they're the first ones to help develop this idea of the priesthood. Remember what God says to Abraham. The Lord says to Abraham, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sins of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. Abraham leads the people of God out of Israel into the promised land, and God lets him know. Sorry, Abraham doesn't. Abraham sets up the calling to the the land. Moses leads them out. So this principle of tithing took hundreds of years to develop in the life of the community. 
and the people who began to be the servants of God in the temple were the tribe of Levi. Let me tell you a little bit about this tribe, Levi. When, when the Israelites came out, some of you may remember this story, they worship a golden calf. They erect this golden calf. The tribe of Levi does not bow down and worship. And God says that special tribe is going to have a special role to the people of God. And here's the special role. They will serve as the priests managing the temple. But the tribe of Levi had to live off the offerings of all the other tribes. So God set up a pattern. Some people are called to be set apart to take care of the temple, the house of God, the people of God. And therefore, their work, their livelihood is to come from the giving of the other tribes. Now, you might think, I see where you're going here. (laughs) Hang on. God had established a people who had served as his priests, but everyone was to be a part of the royal priesthood of God. Some people were set apart from the temple, but all of us are to be priests, worshipers, caretakers of God's word. Listen to this. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called from him to a mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. This is God speaking to Moses to the people of Israel. This is Exodus 19, by the way. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we have this priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, but all of us are priests of God. And these tribes were to care for this tribe to remind them of holy things and holy responsibilities. Let's let's move now to tithing in the New Testament and see how Jesus then becomes our great high priest. Again, back to Hebrews, Hebrews 7. Now, there have been many of those priests from the tribe of Levi, I inserted that, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike the other high priests. He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. All right, let me try to summarize a couple of points. Old Testament, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. 
this great high priest. The law develops. The tribe of Levi develops. The priesthood develops. On comes Jesus to the scene. Jesus is called our great high priest. He supersedes all the other man-made priesthoods and God-made priest callings. He's greater than all of these things. So naturally then, the principle of logic plays in. If the people of God tithed to the priesthood in the Old Testament, they make tithes to their new priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. Generosity is consistent in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. The first question we must ask, if, if people tithe in the Old Testament, then where did it stop? It has not stopped. The church serves as a new type of temple for the people of God, through which gen, a generous God shepherds his people and proclaims salvation to the whole world. Now, some of you would say, well, I'm very skeptical of the church. You have every right to be skeptical of the church for her failings, but she is still the body of Christ. The church is the vehicle for the gospel to the ends of the earth. The church is called ecclesia in the New Testament. It's the called out ones. In Acts chapter 2, the church develops in earnest and fullness at Pentecost. The New Testament uses this word church 114 times to describe the calling out of the body of believers. Some would refer to it as an assembly of people from a religious emphasis, but most, occur, most occurrences of this word refer to it as the universal church, the whole and true body of believers and local churches like Church of the Redeemer. It's very important to note this. The church in the Bible always referred to people, not buildings. In the New Testament, Christians did not go to the church. So if someone says, where do you go to church? You say, man, I am in the church. It's literally in every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And from Acts 1, a small group of the church has blossomed into almost 2.5 billion men, women, and children around the world called the church. Listen to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul writes, God's intent, the mystery of the gospel, the redemption of Jew and Gentile, two broken people forming one new humanity, was that now through the church. That's the vehicle of God's redemption in this world, is the church. And the gospel is the message of the church. That through the church, the manifold, the multicolored wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I said, it's very easy to be down on the church. I am not. Well, you say, but you work for it. I, I, all right, fair, fair enough. But my heart does break when the church does not walk in a manner of the, worthy of the gospel. But I'm convinced, friends, that the hope of the world is the gospel manifested through a people who display very freely the glory of God. My hope is not anchored in some position of our nation 
or governmental activity or social club or new book. My hope is anchored in a people, a real living, breathing, walking, talking people who have embraced the gospel of God and who live it out in their world. That's the hope of the world. That's why I am not down on the church. I'm up on the church. So how does the church do its role? Well, the people of the body give, they tithe to the church, to the Lord, to see it be fruitful and faithful. Some would say, now, hey, Old Testament tithing, that's all gone all those rules and regulations, it's free will giving, whatever you want. I'm not under the law. No, you're not, but you're still under the king of Salem, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in the order of Melchizedek. Others would say, now, Jesus, he didn't teach tithing. He taught grace. Tithing's a rule. Friends, listen. Matthew 23, you heard it on the screen. It probably got a little intense as Ryan kept going. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin. In other words, you tithe, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the lather. I said lather. Latter. <laughs> without neglecting the former. Did Jesus say... Just do justice, love, and mercy. No. He actually commended the Pharisees and the teachers of law. You don't see that much in Jesus. He said, you should be doing these things, but you're neglecting the weightier matters, justice and mercy. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow up a camel. What is Jesus doing here? He's saying tithing does not make you right with God. It is a response of your heart to your Savior and your high priest. Tithing is a generous heart given back to God. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. You've blessed me. You've given me bread and wine, the body of Christ. So I worship you. Tithing is an act of worship to God to care for the people who care for the people. I think what has invaded us in our modern world is an expectation of what I'd call one-click Amazon. Bam. I want the best quality. I want the lowest price. And I want it on my terms, shipped to my house. And so inadvertently, we've taken people out of the equation. So we come to church this way. I want everything on my terms, my time frame, my preferences, my demands. I'm a shopper. But that is not how God even established his church. So we not, no longer see our giving as care for the people who give their lives and often at great sacrifice to care for the sheep. It's not any different than we say in the political discussions about caring for our teachers. Do we not say and make an argument, we should care for our teachers in this nation who, who help educate our children? Shouldn't we take care of our teachers? Most of us, I think, in the room would say yes, especially those of us who have kids who are being taught by teachers. The same principle applies to the church. In the tribe of Levi, God made a provision to care for the tribe 
that cared for the temple and the people. If you don't give to the church, this is what you might be communicating. I expect everything from you, but little from me. And it becomes commercialized. Tithing is a way of making sure the priests and the people were cared for, so they serve God well. This is 1 Corinthians 9. Don't you know, Paul says, that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? That those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Jesus does not abolish tithing, but commends it as you should have practiced it, he said to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So some thoughts on this, and then I'll close. Jesus was not speaking to a group of elite, wealthy Harvard graduates. He preached and taught to the poor and to the rich. Tithing isn't just for rich people. Tithing is a principle of generosity. Ask yourselves this question. Are you generous to God? It boils down to that question. Are you generous to God? Do you give him your time and your talents and your treasures as an act of worship and a response to his generosity to you? Secondly, you cannot run a marathon without running a mile. It might take you a little time, so you take a step. You take a step, you take a step. You set in your mind, I want to generously, I want to move to generosity. I want to progressively grow in my generosity. And I believe if you make that commitment, God will provide in miraculous ways. Tires may last longer. Shoes last longer. Chick-fil-A um, needs to stop uh, for my family. You, you find ways to move towards generosity when you make that commitment. God has a way of providing. It's amazing. But don't hear me say today. Hear me say progressively move. Some of you may convicted like, hey, I'm not given anything. I need to start moving. Marathon principle. I want to move to become a generous person. I realize this won't answer every question. So some of you will say, well, do I give on gross or net? What if I'm in debt? What if I'm in college? What if I have kids in college? What if I don't make very much? I would encourage us to consider this way. There will never, ever be a right and convenient time to move to biblical generosity. There will never be a great time when you go, just won the lottery, I'm going to start giving now. 78% um, of people respond after winning the lottery that they wish they would never have done it. I want to be in that 22%, but never, <laughs> never mind. Um, so the starting point is tithing, and all the applications and dimensions of it come into play after that. Hey, wait, I don't give to the church because I support ex-ministry or ex-missionary. Those are offerings. We'll talk about those next week. Lastly, I won't teach on this or tell you to practice something that I am not practicing, that Angela Kay and I am not practicing. That's the essence of hypocrisy. We have grown every year in giving, primarily because when I consider what God has given to us, it is small what we give back. My favorite hymn, the text arose out of Isaac Watts, 
meditation on Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. It says, may I never brag about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never boast about anything but him. I can say our call to generosity has grown because of the understanding and the love that I have for Jesus Christ and have grown in that. And I consider what he has done and who he is. And it is only a small offering back to him. As a result, Isaac Watts wrote this great hymn, um, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He said in one of the stanzas, Were the whole realm of nature all mine? What if I owned everything? That were a present far too small. If I owned everything, that would still be a small present to give to God. Why, he writes, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.